In retail, you're playing offense. In moving, we say we're playing defense. Welcome closers. This is the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you live. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, and this is the place to come for weekly interviews with world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who open up and share their secret sauce so that you can apply their knowledge to grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100, 1,000, or 10,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. Don't forget to join us in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group where we talk profit, share resources, and ask podcast guests follow-up questions after the interview. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Nick Kim and Dylan Kindler. Nick is the head of Platform at Crosscut Ventures, a seed stage VC firm in Los Angeles. Crosscut invests in small startups that have the potential to make some major changes in the current markets. Dylan is a senior associate at Parkstone Growth Partners, a private investment firm which helps entrepreneurs get their foot in the door. But honestly, guys, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about Crosscut or Parkstone. We're talking about Walnut the startup that Nick and Dylan were co-founders at. We're going to talk through the journey that they had trying to build a startup in a really competitive space. They basically waded directly into the heart of a red ocean, took a crack at it, ultimately closed the company down, but had some significant lessons learned that I think are applicable to property management. We'll dive into some of the parallels. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That, that preamble got me pumped up. Good. Glad to hear it, man. Well, let's keep yeah, you let's pumped go. up. I want to hear some more about the original investment thesis. When you take on capital, when you're playing in the big leagues, there has to be a big idea for how scale is possible. And furthermore, in your case, it was scale in a really old, crusty, in some ways, kind of gross market. What made you want to take on the moving market in the first place? What was the big idea? Dylan and I met at Warby Parker, and the two of us uh, realized pretty quickly that despite Warby Parker being uh, making glasses for a really great price and having entering the market with such a such a, a game changing product, one of the things that stood out to us was that the customer experience was such a great moat for the company. Obviously, we don't want to understate the importance of being able to sell five hundred dollar pair of glasses for ninety five dollars. But the customer experience was such a big piece of why people kept coming back. And so as we looked at that and thought about other industries that we might apply that to, we thought, you know, a lot of product companies were popping up and improving the customer experience, but there weren't a lot of people thinking about services. So we thought, you know, let's look at services. Let's bring this digital native customer experience to a service industry. And we couldn't think of anyone that had a lower bar than moving. And so that's why we dove in. Give me some more color on why service-based businesses don't get their due. Why are they kind of viewed as a dog in the valley as opposed to product-based businesses? Service mom and pop tends to uh, not get as much love. Do you see that kind of changing or shifting? And why do you think that mindset exists? 
I think it's hard to scale a service business in the same way that you can scale an internet or product business. And, you know, you mentioned we went in on to a business that, you know, how, how do we think about scaling this type of business? And the, the honest truth is we actually didn't know if Walnut was something that was going to be a billion dollar business. If you had to give us a truth serum and ask, I think we'd say, no, it might be a hundred million dollar business. It might be a $10 million business. That's something we'll be really excited about because what does a billion dollar moving business look like if you're going to actually employ the people like we sought out to do? It's thousands, tens of thousands of people. That's almost impossible to keep the hospitality and service magic that we wanted. It's done in some places. Um, you think of places like Costco, you think of businesses like Trader Joe's, but those are the exceptions to the rule. And so to answer your question, I think people shy away from it because it's so hard to scale. Right. And these are some of the dynamics that you guys face. Let's talk through some of the specifics of moving. I think everybody has a moving story, right? At some point in your life, you've hired movers and you've got a real flavor for what it's like. For me, it's it's thinking about when I was, I want to say, 14 or 15 family moves, the movers come over and uh, pretty quickly find out that they are all uh, ex-felons of some kind. And so that kind of was a, it was an interesting experience interacting with them. But I think that was like the first time that I heard like an unfettered series of F-bombs in front of me and my younger siblings. I didn't walk away from that thinking like, wow, that was a, a really high caliber experience. And that kind of set my expectations for the category in general. That's the, the experience that I would put on it. How would you describe the nature uh, of what kind of the average moving experience looks like that was the baseline you were wanting to optimize off of? So I think coming back to why we wanted to do this, right? We wanted to optimize the customer experience, but what we found in our research was so much of the reason that the moving companies are delivering a poor experience is the way that they're treating their employees. So for you, you're seeing it from the perspective of these are these three movers that have come into my house. They're moving these things and they're, you know, unprofessional. They, they came late. They're swearing. They're doing all of these things. They're, they're, they're hassling me about a tip when everything's said and done. All of these things are the aspects of moving that people everybody knows and everybody hates. And unfortunately, a lot of that gets blamed on the individuals who are doing the moves. But we found that a lot of that comes actually from just the way that these companies are run. And so to sort of paint the picture, I mean, you look at the moving industry and everyone is competing for the same people. It's, no one wants to pay a better price. And we can get to that later uh, in this conversation about what we found on the pricing side of things. But because no one wants to pay a better price, the moving companies are forced to offer as low of a price as they can. And when they do that, they have to then do all of these things to make a profit. And what that usually plays itself out in is the way they treat their employees. So the employees will get cheated on their hours. They won't get paid for the drives and only paid for the, the, the time that they're on site. They won't have stable hours. They'll be fired when the season changes and moving is notoriously has a lot of seasonality in it they're going to lose their jobs as soon as the summer turns around to, to fall and winter. And all of these dynamics make it so that these people just aren't invested in their jobs. And so when you have people that aren't invested in their jobs, they're just not going to deliver the type of experience and the type of service that you would expect. 
Mm. So lack of differentiation leads to commodification, leads to underpaid team members that act like underpaid team members. I get that. In terms of the actual walkthrough of the experience with Walnut, like how would you describe the actual mechanics? Aside from just high level, it's great. Like what, what were some of the specific points of differentiation that the consumer may be able to pick up on that was like different about the Walnut experience? I think in a lot of ways, it was it was a lot of little things. It was being thoughtful. You know, we, we talked a lot about hospitality at a restaurant or what it's like to be in someone's home where someone treats you well and all of the little things that they do to be thoughtful about your experience really played up. So we would do things like give people a small housewarming present um, when the move was complete. Uh, we would do things like teach our team um, how to greet someone at the door, right? It's all of these very little things start to add up. The product is getting people stuff from one place to another without damaging it. And so you have to sort of find the little parts of the experience that were really bad and get rid of them. Some of the things that also were super impactful were things like being very thoughtful about schedules, not saying we're going to try to double up these two moves in one day and let there be a 50% chance that someone's move gets canceled last second. Now, things like that have real margin impact considerations that we ultimately realize were going to be too much to make the business worth continuing to try to grow. But it was stuff like that that really made the experience better. Got it. Okay. So this is obviously a, a real people-centric strategy, though. It is a service-based business. People in the home, you're teaching some of the soft skills. You're teaching the communication around how to provide a great experience. Let's talk about the people strategy. What did or did not work? And how did the thesis of paying better and offering a better job translating into a better more satisfied team member and therefore a better experience. How linearly did that strategy work out or not work out for you guys? Nick, take that one for me, please. Yeah. So we were really inspired by an MIT professor named Zainab Tan, who wrote a book called The Good Job Strategy. And in that book, she outlined uh, a couple of brands, Trader Joe's being one of them, Costco being one of them, uh, where by offering people good jobs, these companies, despite having really low margins, are actually able to uh, beat the profit margins of all their competitors and in an environment where they're actually paying their employees more than the rest of their competitors. So what she, what she shows is that by offering people good jobs, and again, good jobs are stable where you know when you're supposed to be there and you know you're going to have stable hours, an environment where you're actually valued and treated with respect and, and given opportunities and trained, all of these things make it so that these companies can actually drive a lot of their, their profits through operational efficiency. So we thought, what better way to improve the moving industry than to offer good jobs to our movers? So we did that. We offered them higher pay, consistent schedules. Uh, we actually didn't accept tips in our moves and actually paid the tip every time up front in the cost of the, or in the wages of our movers. And as we went through this process, what we found was that unfortunately, in these retail environments, this strategy might work. In moving, it doesn't. And the paradigm that we think is different is that in in retail, you're you what we call you're playing offense. So you get to set the plays, right? And the Trader Joe's gets to determine what the building looks like. It gets to determine where the cash registers are, what the lines look like, how everyone moves through that space. 
in moving, we say we're playing defense. Every time you go to a customer's house, you're going to have a different environment. Each couch is going to fit differently through each doorway. Each stairway is going to be different. Each turn is going to be different when you're carrying this 200-pound couch down four flights of stairs. And so instead of being able to optimize on a second or minute level the way some of these retailers are, we're only optimizing on the hour level and trying our best just to stay within the estimates that we'd set out to. So that offense versus defense uh, difference makes it so that that good job strategy just didn't work for us the same way it did in retail. Ah, this is really interesting. So now we're getting at the nut of the issue. What you're telling me is that when it comes to efficiency, the bottom line is that this was not McDonald's. This was not a sufficiently controlled environment that you were able to reproduce the same production of of the good and the service in a consistent way each time. The parallel here for property management for the listeners at home would be the maintenance function. When somebody goes out to do a maintenance job, ideally it was spec'd ahead of time. It's a known problem. It's a, a known leaking faucet or hole in the door that's being patched. But sometimes when you get out there, there is some level of variance and change, a little bit of scope creep, as we might say. I could definitely see how that would cause some disruption. The the other side of that equation, though, is the revenue piece, right? So efficiency is addressing cost, but when driving bottom line profit, revenue oftentimes is, is the bigger opportunity. Let's talk through revenue maximization, and specifically, let's talk through the competitive landscape, how you were anchored against that versus how this high focus on experience allowed you to break away from that. Dylan, walk me through what the competitive landscape looked like. Yeah, what I'll say is that the competitive landscape and consumer preferences is what did not allow us to break away from that. And that's why Walnut doesn't exist anymore. What we found was as we were launching, we went and did surveys like anyone does. And we found two things, basically. One, people saying, I have horrible reviews in my moving company, right? So if, you're, if your listeners are familiar with Net Promoter Score, we survey Net Promoter Score of anyone's mover. So you, you just move, what would you give them? Zero to 10 on how likely you are to refer them to a friend. That's the mechanics of NPS. And the aggregate NPS was absolutely horrible. So that was opportunity one. And opportunity two was people said, yes, I would be willing to pay some amount more for a service that makes moving not this horrible thing. So we said, great, those are, those are two perfect things. We can pay people more, be a little bit more efficient, like Good Jobs talks about, and hopefully make more revenue, at least in the form of integrating the tip into the price, but hopefully a little bit more than that. What ends up happening is that when rubber meets the road and you go and actually try to charge people more, they 100% bulk. And the analogy is cheap airlines. So if you've ever flown an airline called Ryanair in Europe or Spirit is an example in the US. Frontier. Frontier, exactly. These are horrible experience airlines that also happen to be incredibly big and incredibly profitable and people continue to fly them. And why, even though they say that was a horrible experience, I would not recommend Frontier to my friends. I would not recommend Ryanair to my friends. Do they keep flying it? It's because they are not frequent flyers. And when it's time to fly, they go on Google Flights and it's the cheapest one. And so they pick it. 
that's what happened to us because moving is such an infrequent thing where you're already shelling out so much money for everything else in the residential process. You might realize that by getting the most inexpensive mover, you're in for some trouble, but people do it again and again. And so, yes, maybe there's a niche higher end market that's way smaller, but that's really the exception, not the rule. What's the average American move rate every however many years? Did you guys back into that? It's like every every five years, somebody moves? I think it's two, right, Nick? Yeah, we were working off of two in New York City. Wow, two seems way more frequent than I've moved, but yeah, not maybe not often enough that it's a visceral, tangible experience. Let's talk about how reputation augments that. When you talk about market efficiency, taking the slack out of the market, there's a number of ways to do that. There's regulation, but there's also reputation. Reputation is what you hope for, is to have that non-asymmetry in the marketplace between the consumer and the service provider. Did you guys find that there was a robust and healthy system of reviews that was honest and that uh, consumers could really rely upon to guide their decision making? I mean, I think the short answer is no, right? Everyone has their issues with Yelp. And it's the, it's the same thing, whether you're looking at moving companies, or you're looking at restaurants, or you're looking at dry cleaners. It's who are the people that are taking the time to actually write these reviews? What is the perspective that they're bringing to this? Can, do I even care about this particular person's review? And so that that sort of Yelp effect in the moving industry was really strong. But I think it's actually particularly bad for moving companies in Yelp because they do all kinds of nefarious things to each other to just, again, continue to drive the industry in the wrong direction. So we saw things like fake accounts that moving industry people would have or their family members would have, and they'd go trash other moving companies on Yelp. They would do all these sort of underhanded things to to diminish the reputations of each other. And all that does is put everyone on a spiral downward and a, and a race to the bottom of the market. Hmm. So another one of the innovative positions that you took was this no tipping policy. This is Danny Meyer ask. This is Adam ruins everything ask. This is potentially one of those contrarian viewpoints that it's like, hey, yeah, in theory, it makes sense. But for whatever reason, the market resists it. Where are you guys at now after having made a big bet that by providing greater clarity for the consumer, by baking tipping in and making easier to estimate the total overall cost for the transaction, that the consumer would, would value and reward that kind of transparency? Obviously, that didn't completely work itself out. Where are you guys on that overall thesis around uh, the function and utility of tipping? Dylan? I think if you could wave a magic wand, you would have America look like countries that don't have tipping and that's just a better experience for everyone. But it's so deeply ingrained in American expectations and how Americans price things out that it's probably on a case-by-case basis that you can revert to a no-tipping model and actually get rid of it. So I think it's better to not have it. I think in moving, it absolutely screwed us up in that people just couldn't get over the the sticker comparison issue of our move might be $900 and you might be getting quoted $800 from someone else and that's the same price, but you're just not gonna look at that way. And 
we are too small probably of a player to really change consumer behavior in this um, one niche in any material way. So Nick, what do you think on that one? Yeah, I would agree. I think when you look at Danny Meyer and what he's doing and tipping with his restaurants, I don't know if anyone would argue that it's a it's a worse experience because you know what you're getting. And like to Dylan's point, it's so ingrained in in the way Americans dine that when you get the bill and it has a number at the bottom and the tips included, you almost feel like you're getting a discount because you don't have to tip on top of that, even though the tip is already baked in. It's just that like bottom number sticker price is what you think of. And in the moving industry, unfortunately, because these transactions are happening so infrequently, because this is such an ingrained part of the experience and because price is such a big part of the buying decision for, for individuals who are moving, it's just really hard to get them over that hurdle, that mental hurdle of this company over here is asking for one price. This company over here is asking for a higher price. The tip is baked in over here, but it doesn't matter. That flexibility, and then they, it's hard for them to think forward You know, 25 days to when the move actually happens to what that experience is going to be like when they actually have to go to the ATM during the middle of the move. They have to go pick, pull cash out. They don't know who to give it to. Is it, is it all three of the guys individually? Do I give it to one guy? Is he going to give them an equal share? Like All that stuff is taken out. But they're not able to sort of be in that moment when, as they're thinking about the buying decision and all they're thinking about is, I don't want to spend any more than I have to on this move. And that ultimately put us in a position where we just weren't as competitive on price because the tip was part of our sticker price. Love it. So this is another great parallel for property management. The difference between charging 8% and 5% or 2% for your management fee is really how you choose to capture the dollars. You can cut the upfront sticker price in half and pad it on the backside. And maybe you can say through sufficient level of disclosure, that could be a fair or a reasonable and ethical way to treat the consumer. But at the end of the day, there's a weird dynamic here, guys. Here's what I sense. What I sense is that the consumer in many cases would rather risk a negative outcome for the possibility, for the hope, the promise, the possibility of haggling and really having that low sticker price actually be true. Do you think this is just a classic example of human irrationality where people are just willing to take the it's clearly too good to be true offer? That's more malicious than I think people are actually, I think it's really just a, if you're not going to, you're not going to take the time to really do the math. And there's just a biological sticker shock. It's, it's purely sticker shock that just sort of happens naturally that gets people tripped up. And if they really sat back and thought sort of rationally with the rational part of their brain, they might line it up right. But that's just not how uh, people think about these things. And second, I just don't think people are really buying these things in a way where they're putting that much mental exercise towards towards calculating the whole price. So I, I, I don't think it's that they're saying, I want to have the option to be able to stiff someone on a tip. I think people really hate tipping, particularly out of a restaurant where at least in a restaurant, you're signing the dotted line and you're putting in your perfunctory 20% and you're not thinking about it again. In the real world, it really, it really sucks. But I just don't think that um, people are just hardwired in America that way because you're just so accustomed towards um, the, the sticker price. 
2019 PM Growth Summit is the place for growth-minded entrepreneurs. Held in Austin in April, you can get the information at pmgrowsummit.com as well as a $100 discount using the code JORDAN. This is the place to go if sales and marketing and growth is the current priority within your business. If you're not there yet, no problem. But if you are, if you're looking to level up, if you want to network with other entrepreneurs, capital E, that are putting word to action with legitimate growth strategies that are driving the needle, this is the event to go to. Let's talk about the non-equivalency or non-parity of um, the underlying unit economics that Walnut experienced versus how some of your competitors operated. For when you're dealing with a competitor that is maybe not um, on the up and up, not completely above board, what were some of the ways where it maybe wasn't a level playing field in terms of the, the unit economics? There are a couple things to talk about here. One is, you know, genuine cheating, which is a proactive way to manage your profitability as a company. And then there's the more sort of, these are the norms of the industry that we want to change, right? So I'll talk about this, this latter one first. Some of the things that moving companies do that we just thought wasn't fair, but everyone sort of does is if you're doing a move from New York to Philadelphia, for example, most moving companies will pay you to go to the site to pick up the stuff, drive the stuff to Philadelphia, unload the truck in Philadelphia, and that's where your job ends. Because they'll say, outside of the driver, the other two movers are are not on the job anymore. They've finished the job, and the drive back is simply them on their phones or hanging out, and so we don't need to pay them for that. That to us is just complete nonsense. And there's no reason that you wouldn't pay that person that extra hour to hour and a half, maybe even two hours for that drive because they're working for you. Yes, they finished the quote unquote job, but they're not home with their families. They're not doing the things that they want to be doing with their time. They're working. So for us, that might look like an eight hour job, whereas to every other moving company, that's a six hour job. So that's just really hard to compete right, right off the bat. I don't want to go too much into like the cheating and the stuff that these other moving companies do because it's sort of blanket generalizations about companies and it's somewhat derogatory towards a, a lot of, you know, when you generalize like that, a lot of good moving companies out there that are doing all the right things sort of get dragged through the mud when unfair, unfairly. But it's all the stuff that you've heard of, right? They'll take your stuff and hold it hostage. They'll cheat the movers themselves by saying, you know, this was a job that we booked for six hours. It took you seven hours. You were just being lazy and slow. I'm only going to pay you for six hours. Stuff like that that everyone's heard of. I don't want to dwell on that too much because it's just a, a negative in the industry and I would just love to see that change. But those two things are the things we saw the most and that's what made it hard for us to compete. For those founders that are listening to us, in terms of like the startup mindset, part of what I'm hearing is that it sounds like there were some things that you initially caught on to that maybe were somewhat misleading. There was a delta between people's willingness, desire for a better service doesn't always translate into willingness to pay for it. Could you tease out some of the other nuance of what you felt like was maybe a little bit of an exception to the rule here, specifically kind of the difference between discretionary purchases versus compulsory expenses? There are, there are purchases that people don't want to make but have to make, and there's purchases people don't have to make but want to make. And in the latter category, you might say, I'm going to treat myself and pay a little bit more for a better thing. 
in the categories of things that are, I just have to do this. It's really hard for people to spend more to have a better experience when they just don't want to do it anyway. So airfare is a good example of that. No one wants to pay for airfare. You might want to be somewhere, but you definitely don't want to fly. And moving is that too. And, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, but you're paying not even for a better experience. You're paying up for a lower likelihood of a bad experience. It's really easy to say, okay, maybe 25% chance this goes horribly with this budget firm and it goes down to 1% chance with, with Walnut, but I, that means nothing to me. So I'm just going to pay less money. When we go through kind of the progression of the timeline of Walnut's existence, what was the timeline from start to finish? How long were you guys in this endeavor? We treated it sort of like a test. So we said, what's the sort of, you know, minimum viable product is, is I guess, the right term. We said, what's the smallest amount of time, effort, and capital that we can put into this to validate or not our, our hypothesis, which is something you hear all the time in internet and software businesses and might not happen as much in sort of real-world businesses. But what that allowed us to do was basically go full-time on Walnut in April, launch in June, and, and that included figuring out a full sort of customer onboarding perspective, uh, a building a brand, buying a truck, hiring a team, all that kind of stuff really fast. And then we operated it for the summer and we closed it down at Labor Day. So it was, it was truly a sprint and a test uh, in the most agile way. And we got exactly the answers we might not have wanted, but the answers we needed to get. Wow. And so this is one of the gifts of the startup mindset is the whole fail fast, fail forward thought process. What was the milestone that was missed? And how did you think through getting to that point of actually deciding to to shut down? I mean, obviously for a lot of business owners, there's a lot of ego and identity that is caught up in something. Taking an L is never a good feeling. Kind of walk me through the the, the mental mindset of where you were at, walking through that 11th hour decision to make the final call. So we had a lot of clarity about what our core hypotheses were. And I think probably the one that stood out the most was the, was are we going to be able to make a margin on this that is above and beyond the typical moving margin because we can offer a better service for a higher price and we can have a better cost structure and profitability because of the good job strategy. And the way we launched this business, we needed to at least get some operational experience and do all that. So we started our pricing kind of mid-market uh, for a moving company. And over the course of the summer, we continued to increase them. As we started to push the pricing higher, we started to get a lot more pushback on booking with us. People started nickel and dime us over $200. You know, XYZ moving company over here is offering me th th this exact same move for $200 less. And they would actually go with that other company despite it, knowing... $50 less. Some $50 less, yeah. Despite you know. knowing that we were going to offer a significantly improved experience and no tips. Like that $50 is going to come out in the tip. And as we started to realize that, another thing happened where... Uh, we a move went a little bit later than we had hoped. Um, we knew we could kind of iron out those kinks over time, but what we realized was if we're not extremely tight on our planning and modeling, 
forget making a good decent margin. We're actually negative margin on moves. And so that sort of realization coupled with the fact that we didn't think we could increase the prices as quickly and as, as high as we originally modeled, that made it pretty easy because we started to build, you know, Dylan's a financial wizard. We started to build models that just didn't look very exciting for two to three years out. And it was sort of, are we willing to go for this for the opportunity to have decent margins in five years? And mm. that, that was sort of an easy decision. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. So you felt like that scale was maybe going to be the one savior to provide the kind of unit economics that would really drive a lot of profitability. And that was a gamble. It was far out. For those that are listening at home, as you're thinking about this idea of unit economics, which is basically just the concept of taking an individual micro transaction and extrapolating how that works to what's going to happen at the macro level, thinking about your cost. This is the equivalent of, of looking at the sandwich at a store and asking, well, what did the bread cost? What the meat cost? What did the lettuce cost? What did the labor cost, et cetera? Could you guys put any color on the importance of unit economics in general for, for kind of forecasting, business modeling? How would you communicate the importance of that to somebody that's maybe in more of a, a mom and pop um, service-based business? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it, especially in the startup world, people too often assume that over time, they'll be able to get profitable, even if today what they're selling is not profitable, right? So they say, okay, I'm, I'm selling sandwiches for $4, even though it cost me five bucks to make it. And once I get some scale, it's going to not cost me five anymore, it's going to cost me two, or I'm going to be able to charge eight for it. And in some businesses, that's true. And in other businesses, that's really not true. In the sandwich example, yeah, with scale, maybe you can actually look on an individual level and say, sure, I'm going to be able to bulk order stuff and get the price down. I probably won't be able to raise revenue, but it's not the same as in some other industries where if you're Google, it literally costs you almost nothing for the next user. And the, the analogy Nick and I always like to talk about is if you go and open a store where you sell dollars for 90 cents, you could literally have a billion dollar business plus because you'll have sales forever because everyone's going to do that deal and you've just grown a billion dollar business. Congratulations. It's worth nothing because you always will fundamentally lose in that transaction. Man, guys, so that's, that's pretty much sums up why I had these guys on the show. If your unit economics are jacked from day one, and your name is not Mark Cuban or Mark Zuckerberg, you probably don't have the wherewithal to pivot your way out of that. Now, in property management, residential property management, when you're going from zero to 50 doors, there's an exception to that use case. But once you're at a, a functional scale where the revenue should support the labor system-wide to do the job, if your unit economics are off, if you're running an unprofitable operation, you should be deeply suspicious at the idea that scale is going to fix that. That's an advanced game. That's oftentimes a game that simply doesn't 
that even if you can make it pan out, even if you can get from 5% margin to 10% margin, but you've got to grow the company by three times to do that, that could be outside the scope of your ability on that growth piece. Operations and driving profit should be the primary focus of every entrepreneur. If from that, you, you want to, if you have a really healthy operation and you then want to reinvest dollars back into growth, God bless but you got to be able to show that the system and the method and, and the revenue engine works. In y'all's case, you had a really sober moment. You saw that it didn't. Now I'd love to kind of pivot into the section of the interview that is not talked about a whole lot. And that is this, Nick, how do you wind down a company? Yeah, you know, specifically for this, it was um, because we did a test, it was fairly simple, but there are a lot of things that you have to do that, you know, when you know it's over, you really don't want to. And so I'll just kind of rattle off a few things. One, we had to fire our team. That's never fun. They invested in us as much as they we invested in them. They took a chance on a, on a startup and it was really tough to let them know that they didn't have a job anymore. We also had to sell the truck. Uh, that was a little bit easier than we expected. And then you have to kind of do all the wind down on the, the, the company formation. And, you know, we had a third partner in this. We had to figure out what we were going to do next. Uh, we had to distribute all the remaining cash. And, you know, there's some smaller things, some bigger things. I think the hardest thing for me was letting the team go. I'll let Dylan speak for the rest of it because he, he managed a lot of this himself. We still own a great domain called walnuthome.com that if any listener wants to purchase from us, uh, we, we, we pay the cash for it. So that's for sale. I'll, I'll, I'll make that plug. That's our one plug. Um, I was just talking to a friend who is in a startup and they decided actually now before any bad things had happened to put together a, basically a plan for what happens if to shut it down. And they're doing that in inning number one or two just to be prepared to be thoughtful about how to shut everything down. And, you know, we didn't just pull the rug out. We were thoughtful about not scheduling any more customers, right? It would have been easy to say, okay, we'll just, we'll just cancel all the customers, right? And leave them in a bad bind. No, we didn't do that. We, we just stopped scheduling people. We um, obviously gave good severance packages to folks but what we also did, which I think was super important, was we were very intentional to the people we hired for the full time to say, guys, this is a startup and we think that this could be awesome. And you get the upside of being able to potentially grow with the business and achieve really great things really quickly. But you also have to deal with the downside of if this doesn't work, we're going to have to close and, and that will be that. But being very explicit about the nature of what your business was was really important. What about the the mindset component? Where are you guys at in terms of the the headspace of kind of accepting the loss? I get that that's way more normalized within startup culture to have more of a focus on velocity and at bats as being a function of success rather than um, knocking it out of the park and just going all in on one specific endeavor. But at the same time, it's painful, right? It's never fun to lose. Was there any internal hesitation or as a team, were you guys pretty much on the same page hundred percent? And this is really just a math based decision for y'all. We, we always joke that there's 
the real risk of starting a company and of closing down a company is what we joke and call cocktail party risk, which is that you've already done all the math on what the financial pain will look like if it's great or if it's awful. But what's really hard to deal with is just the pride swallowing of having to tell people that you closed down or that you started a company and that you started a moving company in the first place. So you you have to sort of work through that and say to yourself, A, the, the whole name of the game is that you think that the the rewards of, of a positive outcome overcome the fact that it is a less than 10% chance that this works. And I know that it's going to fail. And all of these misgivings I'm having right now are emotional and not rational in the same way. And once you do it and you sit back and you say, wow, we, we didn't just stupidly push forward and try to convince ourselves that at scale this would work, but we were rational about our allocation of time and we were sort of smart to be honest with ourselves and stop earlier. It felt good ultimately that we did that. And the experience was awesome. I mean, we get to you know have conversations like this and, and talk a lot about it. Um, and it, it's probably one of the, so many positives came out of just the summer, basically, the summer education of doing this, even though it was a quote unquote failure. Yeah. And I think that the the speed with which you did it and went through the entire cycle had to have driven part of how you related to it, right? This was not a 10-year sunk cost situation where there was a huge hurdle to overcome to get yourself to move on to the next thing where I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of small business owners, the identity is wrapped into it because in part, there's real a lack of clarity and ambiguity as to what's next. Part of the beauty of the startup culture and startup mindset is that the future is bright. This doesn't work out. Oh, well, going to do the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. And I think part of that speaks to the upward mobility and kind of socioeconomic demographic of folks that tend to find themselves in startup culture. But at the same time, I think there is an intrinsic optimism that should be commended. So as you guys ramped down, what was next? Uh, Nick and Dylan, can you both just tell us a little bit about what you're currently doing right now? Nick, let's start with you. Yeah, so I work at a venture capital firm here in Los Angeles called Crosscut. We invest in early stage uh, technology and software-enabled services companies. Um, My experience starting this company as a product manager and general manager at Warby Parker and um, just sort of thinking about growth and and building startups uh, put me in a role here where I actually am helping our portfolio companies grow. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about the ways to once the companies get a check from us, help them reach their potential and achieve their their farthest flung dream. And Parkstone, you, you said the terminology right. We we call ourselves business building investment partners, and that's because what we do is sort of a, a hybrid of investing in businesses, but then we actually go and play hands-on operating roles inside the businesses that we invest in. So it's sort of like when you take an investment from Parkstone, you are not just getting a board member, you're getting people to be executives on your team and and push the growth of your team forward. And Parkstone was founded a a year ago as an independent firm. uh, And I think 
having had that entrepreneurial mindset of going and starting my own thing, uh, definitely made it a better fit for Parkstone and for me because it was, let's go build this firm up to go build companies up. And that's the strategy. We, we focus mainly on healthcare businesses, um, growing um, basically group practices from a certain amount of providers to more, as well as some other transactions in, in the consumer insurance worlds. Love it. Takeaway for those of you listening at home, if you're taking money, take it from people that have some operational chops, take it from people that I can actually have empathy because they've been there firsthand in the trenches, dealt with cash flow issues, people issues, and at some point had to deal with taking an L or two. Nick, Dylan, really appreciate you guys coming on the podcast. If folks want to follow your careers and see what you're up to, what's the best place to go? Starting with you, Nick. Uh, I guess probably the best way to reach me is through um, a connection to CrossCut. And so you can find me uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm, I'm sort of on all the channels. Uh, LinkedIn is perfect for me. Dylan Kindler, Parkstone, LinkedIn. And uh, looking forward to talking to any folks that want to talk. For those of you listening at home, check out the postmortem that they put online. We're going to link to it in the show notes, but they actually have a full drafted write-up on the postmortem experience, which is really unusual. The fact that you guys are willing to kind of come out and talk about the experience, talk about it not working out in a way that's really fundamentally optimistic and value-added is a huge contribution to the startup community. I think that business owners in general need to get more committed and comfortable to talking about failure publicly and kind of helping the overall ecosystem learn from it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. The next time you guys are in Austin, let's catch up and break bread. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.